overtime in this business, everything is a negotiation. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by Ecospace.com. Now, here's your hosts, Adam and Jason. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm Jason J. Lou Lewis with my amazing co-host, Adam, AAA Adams. And today we're going to be diving into essentially relationships. You know, what, what, how do you build them? What do you get out of them? What's the ultimate goal where you can make it where they're win-win for, for everyone? That's uh, both on just general relationships and real estate relationships in particular. And that's one reason that Adam wanted to have Derek come on today. Um, they're connected in several years in the past. Uh, they've known each other really well. And it's because Derek is a hard money lender, landlord, flipper, mentor, national speaker. And he ultimately loves to help people solve creative real estate needs. His uh, saying is he loves to negotiate deals at the kitchen table. So, uh, today we want to bring on Derek. So Adam, uh, Derek, you guys ready to go and add some value to, to the listeners today. More ready than you know, Jay Lou, more ready than you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's do it. Let's, uh, let's dive in. So Derek, just take me back. I know we're in the same mastermind. We've known each other for a bit. Um, so it's leadership boardroom, the bomb mastermind, by the way, I don't get any dimes for telling you that, but if you're listening and you want to be a part of it, you should join us. Cause it's really, really fun. Uh, so one day I was sitting down with Derek and, um, at, at, at dinner and just kind of learned about all of the creative real estate that he's done. And, um, and when Jason was saying that Derek loves the negotiating table, the kitchen table, um, he's absolutely right. So one thing that Derek likes to do is be able to control a conversation with questions to be able to get the outcome that he's looking for. And so we're going to dive into that with you today. Derek, take me back though. I want to understand the very first deal you ever did, the first real estate deal you were ever a part of. What year was it? What were you stressed about? Were you excited? Were you afraid? Um, and how did it go? The first real estate deal I ever did was before I ever thought I'd be a real estate investor. And uh, it was 2000, I believe. Um, ended up buying a, a small little house on 20 acres of land, no money down, and put in my own sweat equity, uh, tripled that house in size, ended up building up a, a big workshop. And um, that was kind of my aha moment that I could do it. And I was 21 years old at the time. And uh, so it was several years later when I finally got the bug to actually buy and sell, you know, as a business. But that was my first deal. Okay, so the first deal was actually a no money down deal. So you didn't even want to do real estate. Yep. Why did you buy this property with no money down? This was just to, you know, to live in. And uh, for myself, being early 20s to to be able to, I knew I was good with my hands. I have that construction background. So I knew I could end up building something decent for myself. Uh, I had a good job, so I really didn't see any other way back then. It was all about, you know, just getting a job. But 
Um, after I proved I could do it in my early 20s, by the time I was in my mid to late 20s, there was nothing holding us back. Okay, so you did say something that kind of surprised me is um, besides the fact that you weren't even trying to do this, you it sounded like it took a while since that first one in 2000 before you really caught the bug. What year was your second deal? 2003, uh, the end of 2003 is when we officially got into real estate. And the reason was I was brought under somebody's wing in the financial services industry and I found out I hated it. You know, I was sitting down with families and talking to them about insurance and, and mortgages and stocks and just things that I didn't like. But the thing I did like was seeing and learning how mortgages worked and learning again how, how real estate worked. So in, I believe it was October of 2003, my wife and I um, started like anybody, right? We're looking for education, looking for places to get some knowledge. And uh, we did that. We went under contract at the tail end of 2003. And in January of 2004, we closed on four properties within a couple of weeks of each other. And, and we built up a, a very large portfolio in the next two years until uh, beginning of 2007. And I really don't have to tell you, that didn't end well for us. Um, 2007 through 2010 were three years that I wouldn't mind forgetting about. Um, it cost us about $4 million and it threw us in a financial turmoil. But what I tell people to this day, it was a blessing in disguise. Um, it sure didn't feel like it at the time, but the reason that I'm really good at what I do today is because of what I was forced to learn in, you know, after going through that and, I learned the foreclosure process and bankruptcy and, and all these nuances of troubled times as we were going through it. So now when I sit down at the kitchen table and I can look eyeball to eyeball with anybody and say, I know how you feel in whatever your real estate or financial troubles are, they know I'm genuine. And it, it really goes a long way. Really, really interesting. So, um, Right now, you love sitting down at, at the negotiation table, at the kitchen table, if you yeah. will. And um, so l let's walk through some of the approaches that the listener needs to do if they want to convert the seller, the potential seller, to actually doing a creative deal with them or selling it at a discount for them. What is there a process that you go through that we can teach the listener to help them be able to do more deals or to be able to, to solve, I guess, the homeowner's problems easier? Yeah, Adam, I'm going to kind of run you through two or three things that I do on every initial phone call or in person, whichever one, because it works the same either way. Um, but the first thing I try and determine within – as quickly as possible, 30 seconds to a couple minutes, is what type of a person am I actually dealing with? So I'm, I'm the type of person that's considered a driver, meaning I can make a decision very quick. I don't need a lot of details. I don't want a lot of analytics because that bores me. Um, but if I'm dealing with an analytical person, I have to turn 
my conversation into more of an analytical conversation. Okay. If I'm dealing with somebody that's more of a driver like myself, I don't have to show them a bunch of comps or neighborhood statistics. I just really need to show them the bottom line. If I'm dealing with somebody that's considered social, um, social people are going to be, as an example, they're going to want to know what are you going to do with your property or their property after you buy it from them. Okay. So I'm going to go after them a totally different way. And the other, the fourth way is kind of a combination of social and, and social conscious. They're, they're very concerned with their neighborhood. They're very concerned with you being happy with the transaction. And again, I'm going to go at that with a different type of conversation. Um, the other thing, I want people to understand that there's more than one option at the very beginning of the conversation. So I call it my elevator pitch. Basically, if I'm on the phone, let's say Jason and I are, are on the phone first couple minutes, I'm going to say, Jason, we buy properties in several different ways. All cash is not a problem, but that's typically going to be our lowest offer. If that doesn't work for you, we could possibly take over your mortgage payments or we could lease the property from you or put an option in place to buy it at a future date or maybe just make payments to you over time. I say all that, Jason, just so you understand that there is multiple ways that we can help you with your problem. So when you get good at that, you can probably tell I've done that once or twice. When you get good at that and you can do that within the first couple minutes before you get into all the details of the deal, they already know in the back of their mind that there's a really good chance they can walk away with some kind of a, a solution. Does that make sense? Uh, absolutely. So um, right now, just to make sure that I'm making the right notes, there's a two or three things that you need to do first when you're sitting down with the seller. And number one is you need to understand what type of person they are. And I have some follow-up questions to that. But number one is you just need to at least understand who that is. And number two, you got to get the elevator pitch out. Is that accurate so far? That's accurate. And I guess I would add one thing to that. You have to know what type of person you are first. You, you have to be willing to acknowledge what, you know, I'm not analytical in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't mean I don't look at statistics or look at the documentation, but by nature, I'm not analytical. So I am going to get along better with another person that is a quick decision maker like myself. Okay. And knowing that and acknowledging it is important. I have a okay. quick question, Derek, for you on your... Uh, elevator pitch. We've had some host come on and say in, in different f formats that essentially a confused mind is a mind that isn't able to make decisions. So mm -hmm. the more options you give a, a seller, the more likely they are to get a little confused or hesitant about doing something. So when you say when you come in and say, we have multiple options for you, cash, or we can take over or lease, um, do you get, how do you overcome if that might confuse them? They just simply just, just need their house gone. They don't know what all those mean. They just need it gone. I'm actually, Jason, I'm using that, that pitch to help me determine what type of person they are. So when they start asking questions, they're asking me specific questions just like you did right now if they are confused or if they're asking for more details on one or two of the other types of ways I can do it, it's giving me hints to what 
personality type they are. Um, so I can give them that pitch, and if within the first five seconds they say, well, I don't care about any of that, I just need a cash offer, I need to sell it quick, like that's telling me they're very decisive, they're most likely a driver, and I can stay away from the analytical side of this conversation. Okay, if they're coming in and saying, well, I don't know if the cash is going to be enough, but I, I just, I need to move because I'm relocating. So maybe, maybe I, I could have you take over my payments if they're stumbling a lot, just like I did right there. That's an indication of, of things for me. Um, body language, how they react, their tone, all of that stuff I'm analyzing while I'm on that first couple minutes of the conversation. That's how I figure out who I'm dealing with and what personality type they are. So you're not wrong with what other people have said. I don't want to confuse them, but I need to get them talking. And as they're talking, I am literally taking notes and addressing what I'm going to say next. Okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, um, so you're throwing out that there's options and then you're just kind of trying to determine based on their response where you need to take the conversation. I, I feel like I do that too when I'm negotiating things. I begin with saying, look, we're going to figure this out somehow. There's a lot of ways that we might be able to do it. And then I wait and watch and listen and start asking some questions. And then I, it feels like I have the better idea of what I'm, what I'm going to even offer. And so for, so it seems like this might be where you're going to. And if it's not, please say it, but like as they get in and you, you ask a few questions and they say, well, yeah, that's what I'm, that's what's important to me. And yeah, that's where I'd like to go. And yeah, that's what I'm going to do with the money. Then you say, well, I have, uh, I have the perfect solution for you. It's X, Y, Z. That's going to give you this, this, and this. And you're an active listener and you heard all the things that they wanted and you came up with the solution based on what they wanted to hear. At least that's what I typically do. What's your approach? And what you do is, is very similar to what I do, Adam, but I, I consciously do it, right? I'm, like I'm planning the next move where I feel like a lot of people are just rolling with it and seeing what happens. Um, to give you an example, when I met Adam, we were at dinner and I really wanted to spend more time with him. He wasn't a part of my group that, you know, our leadership boardroom uh, mastermind has several different groups, but I really wanted to spend more time with Adam. So I already knew the end result that I wanted. Was it important for Adam to know what the end result that I wanted was? Not really. And it was not important for a home seller to know what end result we want. It's just important for them to come to their own conclusion, which just happens to be what I already wanted. So I, you know, talked with Adam and then I, I asked the person that is the leader of the leadership boardroom, if Adam could join our group the next day. And, you know, I, I basically set it up so that I could get to spend more time with Adam. And then as we progressed and we talked the next day, I found out that Adam and, you know, Jason work on a podcast. Great. I like helping people. I like talking about what, what I do for a living. So in my mind, I already know I want to be on some podcasts. Is it wrong for me to help Adam invite me to be on his podcast? Nope, right? So 
it, it was Isn't uh, Jer- Jerry Maguire uh, movie uh, help me help uh, help me help you yeah. I think is is that's the right. same so That's right. So ultimately the example that I give people when I teach them how to do what I do is have you ever been whitewater rafting either one of you guys? Yes, for a sure. lot. Okay. I have a few uh, scars to show for it. <laughs> All right. So when most people go whitewater rafting, they know that it's going to be a lot of fun, right? But you have a guide your raft guide, he knows what you're going to go through. He knows the, the, you know, the class of rapids you're going to go through and where the boulders are and where the eddies are and all this stuff to avoid. Well, that's what I am, right? I'm the, I'm the whitewater rafting guide. And I need to get them safely through the rapids and down to the calm water where they're going to get out of that raft and they're going to be just excited and jacked up because it was a great time, which in our world is closing, right? When we get to closing, they're going to look back at all the, the rapids and stuff we went through and say, that wasn't so bad. Well, that's all I'm doing. When I'm on a phone with somebody or, or at the kitchen table, I'm just guiding them through the rapids. And I already know they're going to be happy with the end result. All right? Good deal. And so you do the elevator pitch. Um, when, when I was asking, you know, how do you know what type of person you're dealing with, what for the listener, are some cues that help you understand I'm with an analytical person or I'm with somebody who's concerned about, you, you know, maybe my feelings and my neighbor's feelings and making sure that everybody's kind of like uh, happy with this decision that I've made or um, that they're, they're a social driver. How do you, um, what are some cue, pick things, cues that you can pick up on that would allow the listener to say, ah, now I know what type of person I'm dealing with. Just a couple before we get into the final five. Um, so it's easy as far as an analytical person. They're going to be asking you all kinds of questions about actual property and addresses and comps and things like that. So those are really easy to identify. Um, the people that are more social conscious, they're going to be really happy to talk about all the things they've done to their house and landscaping and the neighborhood and how great all the kids are that, you know, come and help rake leaves. And, you know, that that's going to give you indications there. And the driver is just going to want you to get to the bottom line. I don't care about all the fluff. I don't care about everything else. What's your offer? And those are the really, really easy ones to notice. Um, the rest of them, and I'll, I'll give you a resource too, where you guys can learn about some of this and read about it, some books, but you know, the rest of it is just record your phone calls. If you're on phone calls, go back and listen to them, take notes. This is what I did for years. I, I would sit in here. Okay. I'll go back and watch this podcast, for example, and say, well, this is what I said. This is what, you know, how Adam responded to it. This is how Jason responded to it. This is what I could do different, or this is what went really well. I'll do that again next time. And over the time or over time in this business, everything is a negotiation. I mean, it can literally be putting your kids to bed, right? They usually win that negotiation. So I, I actually feel like this is a very underutilized and undertaught part of our business because anybody that's wholesaling or flipping or dealing with contractors or, you know, we, we run a hard money lending business. We're, we're constantly interacting with people. Um, but very few people work on their negotiating skills and it's not natural. I, I wasn't born good at this. I took time to 
to learn and study and figure out what am I doing right, what am I doing wrong. And w- when I really did that was 2007 to 2010 when I was losing my rear end and I had to go and talk to bankers and attorneys and I didn't run from our problems. I, I went head first and I, I sat down with people that were decision makers and you know I didn't know what I was doing. I just knew I wasn't going to quit. But then I started analyzing what worked. It sounds so. like a lot goes into really becoming a better negotiator. And um, we've gotten some tips already, but you also mentioned that there was a couple of books that allowed you to be better at it. What books would you recommend to the listener who really wants to focus on, um, on getting better at negotiating? You know, I've listened to or read probably a hundred different sales books. A lot of them are, are really cheesy that I don't agree with. But if you can pick up one or two things out of each one, it's worth my time. My favorite bar none is called Pitch Anything by Oren Claff. And, you know, I've, I've probably listened to that book 25 times. And wow. it, it just, I'm, I, I, I want to get better. Um, Chris Voss has a really good book. And for some reason, I can't remember the name of it all of a sudden. Never um, split the difference. And that other, that other one with Orin Clough, or it's Orin Claff. I don't know how do you pronounce Claff, it. But uh, K- Orin, K-L-A-F-F. Yeah, Orin has uh, the book that you mentioned, Pitch Anything, which was his first book mm-hmm. that he wrote a while back. And he wrote one since called Flip the Script. Have you read that one? I haven't. And it's, okay. on, my, it's on my list. Okay. It's pretty long. Got it. Got it. Got it. Derek, and I, have so, a, I have one quick question for you here. Is you're, you're doing this for the one person you're talking on the phone with, but going back to kind of the original, um, when we were talking at the beginning, it was like you love doing deals at the dining room table. So most likely the dining room table, there is more than one person when you're doing it uh, in person versus over the phone. And, and even over the phone, there might be the husband and wife. So any tip that you have for uh, our audience when they're dealing with two people. And a lot of times they're two different personalities, husband and wife, you know, opposites attract. So is there not to go into too deep, but what's maybe a couple factors that you find of how to handle that just kind of in general. Husband and wife or boyfriend, girlfriend, isn't all that hard because you are going to notice one of them is doing a lot more talking than the other. And that is typically going to be the, one that is the decision maker. What's challenging is if they have mom or dad, mother-in-law, father-in-law, friend who has no financial wherewithal whatsoever, but their opinion still matters. And that is more challenging. Um, and as far as handling them or, or interacting with them, honestly, you, you just have to, you have to acknowledge them and you have to make them a part of this negotiation, even if you don't want to, because they are by default. If I'm on the phone with a wife and I'm teaching her or telling her how I'm going to you know, buy their property subject to their mortgage and I don't get to talk to the husband, that deal's dead because she's never going to explain it the way I just explained it to her. So I may keep that conversation if it's on the phone. I may keep it very vague until we can get together in person or reschedule to when they both can be on the phone. Now, if I set up a kitchen table appointment they're both there, but they're, you know, let's say they're in their 20s or 30s and mom or dad is 
going to be involved in that transaction. If mom or dad are there, that that discussion got a lot tougher um, because now I do have to convince all three of them what I'm doing is in their best interest. And there is no tricks to it. You just have to painfully pick apart their personality type, address any issues. And I typically bring up, you know, like mentioned subject to the due on sale clause almost always comes up or what if you don't make my payments almost always comes up. So I just bring it up before they do and kind of nip it in the bud. Um, if I feel like the person over their shoulder is, it has a question that's eating them up, but they're not asking it yet. I'm going to do the best I can to figure out what's bothering them. And I'm going to bring it up first. Right. So it's easy if they say, well, what happens if you don't make my payment or if they're thinking, what happens if you don't make my payment? Um, great. We all have online, you know, accounts now you can, we'll share a password. You can go check it out. I'll go make sure that I'm paying it on time. You know, there's, there's ways that you can quickly address it without making a big issue. Got it. All right. Well, we should move into the final five. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey guys, please check out Merrill Callister's law firm, Callister and Associates, callisterlaw.com. They're one of the only full service syndication law firms in the country for a flat rate fee. They will represent you from letter of intent all the way through to the closing of the transaction. This includes PSA negotiation, title review and objections, creating the PPM, investor questionnaires, subscription agreements, filing with the SEC and any applicable blue sky filings out of state, along with lender due diligence and assistance with closing the transaction. Callister and Associates also represents sellers of multifamily assets, as well as owners that are refinancing. They have represented over $3 billion in syndication transactions and are currently handling 20 to 30 syndications in any given month. Callister & Associates is your one-stop shop for all things real estate. For more information and a free consultation, please go to callisterlaw.com. That is K-A-L-I-S-E-R law.com. And I've also put that in the show notes for you. Welcome back to the creative real estate podcast from break. We have Derek as our guest today, and we're going to jump into the final five. So starting off, Derek, what's your most creative deal you've been involved with, or uh, you've, you've heard about in the real estate game? Well, I've got a lot of different creative deals, but I've got one that's going on right now that it's interesting and it's probably not my favorite, but it's current and it's in today's market. So I wouldn't mind talking about it. Um, I had a, a gentleman who lives in Texas in a suburb of Houston, Texas. I live in Wisconsin. He actually was in Wisconsin uh, beginning of January and reached out to us to uh, try and sell his house. And what I found ironic was he went to my website, which is literally I buy houses, Wisconsin, and tried selling me a house in Texas uh, and was confused. So we got together and uh, after talking, figured out that there's no way my cash offer, as I mentioned earlier, we, we give him several options, right? My cash offer wasn't going to work for him. And I said, well, the only way that I'm interested is if I can t either take over your mortgage payments or lease the property and have an option to buy the property. I'll give you some cash up front and then I'll, I'll market the property because he just didn't have the time to wait um, to list it with a realtor and take it to market. Now the story he told me was that he, he had to go out of country 
to take care of a family member. So the way we structured it, he, he owed $106,000 on a first mortgage. And I agreed to put $65,000 in his pocket over five months, 10,000 up front, $5,000 a month with my option expiring in June. And I can sell the house for whatever I want. I, my profit is the, the, the net. So the plan was I was going to fly to Texas and make sure that the property was standing there, you know, hadn't gotten hit by Hurricane Harvey. Or, or an actual so, property. Right. So. Um, and this was on, this was actually New Year's Eve when I signed this agreement with them. And I couldn't get a, a title search done that quickly. So I flew down to Texas on uh, January 6th, picked up a rental car, picked, went to the title company, got the title report. And what happened the day before is this gentleman got arrested. So his family's telling me that he got arrested for warrants uh, because of a driving thing. Uh, not true. And I'm not going to say what he got arrested for, but it's, it's not good. So now I get this title search, and he has a very common name, and I have three judgments on this title report against him, and their total is about $90,000. Now, the, the house itself is worth about two thirty-five, and it didn't need any work other than a good cleaning. So now I'm trying to decide, am I going to sign this deal? I have to go to the, the jail. I have to get a notary to go to the jail to get his signatures on everything before I hand him any option money. And ultimately, just to speed things up, we, we spent four hours that day because I can't talk to him. He's in jail. I can't call in. Um, his family members, his daughter, his brother, we all worked together. We did some skip tracing. We figured out that this other, these other three judgments were, in fact, not him. And uh, so I went ahead and did the deal. I, I left the $10,000 cashier's check with his daughter. Uh, I went to the jail, got his signatures using a, a notary that worked for the jail, and uh, I flew home the next day. So they got everything cleared out of his house. I listed it with a realtor. We put it on the market for two thirty four nine, And uh, so my all-in is the first mortgage of 106. By the way, I am making that mortgage payment as well. So I, I have a lease and an option. So my lease requirement is his actual mortgage payment. I've got power of attorney over the property. And uh, something that we do different than most, when I have an option, I also record. Um, I'm in a mortgage state, so I would record a mortgage securing the option. Texas being a deed of trust state, we recorded a deed of trust uh, securing the option. Not a lot of people do that. Um, the reason, and title companies question me all the time why we do it. The reason is if... If somebody sold a property that I had an option to buy and I didn't catch it and the title company didn't catch it, my only recourse is to go to court and sue and it's going to fall under contract law, which is going to be a judge you know, determining how he sees our agreement. If I have a, a mortgage securing the option, it's not going to get missed by a title company because they don't typically miss mortgages when they do title searches. They're trained to look for them. And the other reason is if they fail to let me exercise my option, I can go through foreclosure. And foreclosure is black and white. It's not gray like contract law. So that is the reason we do it that way. Um, so the numbers on this deal initially looked like we were going to make about thirty-five to 
Well, then the virus hit, and depending on when this airs, hopefully we're out of it. But our plan was let's get out of this deal as quick as we can. So I had accepted two offers before they both fell apart, and now as of today, um, I've got an accepted offer. It's looking like it's going to close within a couple of weeks. Ultimately, we're not going to make nearly the profit we wanted to, but the structure was set up so that we have the ability to walk away and really not lose anything, even in this terrible market. Uh, I shouldn't say terrible market, but potentially terrible market coming up. Uh, it did give us the ability to just cut and run and, and get all of our money back and make a little bit of profit. Um, in the end, our all-in was about 170 with uh, the option fee and his first mortgage. Then we've got about another $6,000 out of pocket with making some mortgage payments and travel. Um, so it's not the most creative thing in the world that I've ever done, but it is current. It is in, in this market, and uh, it's an interesting story. Uh, the gentleman is out of jail right now. He is meeting with my title company tomorrow to sign some documents. And if everything goes well in two weeks, this story will have a happy ending. For sure. Yeah. Any, anytime there's jail, notary and uh, deeds and airplanes and flights and family, there's uh, got to be some creativeness to make that deal happen. So um, you had already mentioned the next question was top book. I think Adam had already asked those. So we'll get uh, those notes in the, or those books in the, in the note down below. And then uh, next kind of question we dive into third one is where do you see the, the real estate market and kind of where will you be in, in five years? Well, I've been saying it for the last two years and, and now I've finally became right. Um, I thought we were going to see something like this pandemic, although not a pandemic um, happen sooner than it did. Meaning the markets have been going up. Um, now, I, I live in the upper Midwest, so we don't get huge upswings. We also don't get huge downswings in our real estate. So looking at interest rates where they are, looking at stock market where it was and things like that, I, I actually expected something to affect the, the markets about 12 months ago. But what I see in the next five years, I think we're going to have um, a little slowdown in real estate now then I think we're actually going to see a, a, a peak because we're, let's face it, we just put out a four to $6 trillion uh, chunk of cash that the government doesn't have. So they printed it that just devalued the dollar significantly, which is going to lead to inflation and potentially hyperinflation. So if that, if that happens, property values in the short term are going to go up and then it'll probably lead to a, a fairly decent recession. Um, I really hope that this isn't true, but that's the way I feel. I see for us, again, we're in the Midwest. We can still buy cash flow. We can still flip properties in any market. And right now, we, myself and my business partner, our, our goals are to flip two to three properties a month. I don't think that'll change anytime soon. Um, we've been averaging anywhere from 12 to 15 loans a month through our lending business. I see that increasing um, and five years from now, I really just want to be holding options and holding notes and running our lending business. Um, 
flipping itself. We'll probably always do it, but that is kind of our, our secondary business moving forward. Great. Um, the, well, so. what, uh, what do you want to do and ultimately what are you doing to, to give back to the real estate community that's kind of given to you the past 15, 20 years or so? Well, we started our own RIA group uh, about seven years ago. And last fall, we merged with four other RIAs within the state of Wisconsin. And so it's all nonprofit. None of us uh, ever pulled any profit off our RIAs. It's just a matter of helping to grow our network, educate people. It's not uncommon for me to, you know, take phone calls from random strangers and help them structure their deals because I, I just love talking about it. Um, and, and ultimately, I, I re- realized in part of when I met Adam at our mastermind groups, uh, for the first half of my career, I was a closet investor. I didn't tell anybody what I did, how I did it, where I did it, because I, I didn't have the, the abundance mentality that we have now. Um, I can stand in front of our RIA groups, tell them exactly what we do, how we market, what mail pieces we put out, how often. And, and it, I don't feel like it's competition. And I, I just, ultimately most people won't do it anyways. Um, but we're just open with our information and we always have been and always will be. Great. Mindset of abundance is, uh, the key to happy life. And, one way, the best way for them to reach out to you here at the end of the episode, if they want to learn a little bit more or connect up with you one-on-one. Uh, my email address, which is Derek at bestreifunding.com. And Derek is the short version because my mother probably didn't think I'd be smart enough for the long version. So it's D-E-R-E-K at bestreifunding.com. If you're listening and you want to connect with Derek, don't worry. That email is in the show notes. So just scroll down and you've got it spelled correctly the short way. So don't even worry. Derek's been really good to have you on the show. Really appreciate it. Um, Appreciate you opening up and talking a little bit about your business and not having a scarcity mindset. A couple of takeaways that I got from today's episode is when you're going to sit down at the uh, kitchen table at the closing table or, or the kitchen table, the negotiation mm-hmm. uh, table, I feel like uh, that your advice was really, really good. Just talking about, number one, you need to understand who you are. Like you need to deeply know who, who I am and understand my personality before I start talking with and negotiating with somebody else. And then you want to understand how do, you, how do you get to know their personality in the shortest amount of time. And that tip that you gave about asking that question was very insightful. And everything else that you shared with us today, really grateful for your time. Really appreciate it. We're going to let you go. But until next time, my friend, think outside the box. If you got value out of today's episode, please make sure to leave us a review and let us know how you feel. Um, Jason and I are very, very grateful to have you as a loyal listener and to have you keep coming back and back and back. I want to remind you that Calicern Associates, they can help you literally from the very beginning to the very end of all of your apartment investing transactions. So great resource for you, calicerlaw.com. And if you do want to check out my brand new YouTube channel, it's apartmentinvestingshow.com. I hope to see you there. Bye.